0: Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Jean Bresson.
1: And I'm Tadija booth Watkins.
0: Oh, today, today, today. Uh, Our country, since its inception, has been founded on racism. And as we've seen highlighted recently, it's really a misnomer that our core is every person is created equal, and this is the land of the free. We've seen this most recently in numerous disparities, people of color, economic access to care and housing, police brutality, and much more. Uh, Joe Betancourt has devoted his career to understanding, conducting research, and trying to dispel many of these disparities here at MGH. And I'd like to quote his own words. I always like to quote other people's words. (laughs) Um, I was born in New York City to a bilingual household, then raised in New York City and Puerto Rico. My family and these experiences have led me to a life focused on equity and social justice and fueled my pursuit of diversity and equity in healthcare. I founded the Disparity Solutions Center at, at Mass General, Massachusetts General Hospital, and now I'm Vice President and Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer. I also co founded Quality Interactions, an innovative e learning company focused on cross cultural communication in healthcare. Now, I've had the privilege of knowing Joe for, gosh, over 20 years. Um, and among his work, he's an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. And let's just mention a couple other things uh, as background. Um, uh, he's been for, for currently and for 19 years senior scientist at the MGH Mongan Institute. And the major focus for this institute consists of research aimed at identifying and addressing disparities in health care, so it's, it's uniquely positioned to leverage the extraordinary research environment of MGH as well as national and international collaborators uh, to solve most of the intractable challenges in healthcare. He's also, for 21 years, been co-founder and president of Quality Interactions. Um, and Quality Interactions was founded by Joe, uh, 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 along with Alec, Alex Green, uh, MD, MPH. And um, Emilio Carrillo to improve cross cultural interactions in healthcare. Their cultural competency courses for healthcare, developed by practicing physicians, build critical communication skills and change attitudes and behavior by tracking complex issues like unconscious bias. And today, Quality Interactions has trained over 250,000 healthcare professionals at the country's largest hospitals, health plans, and medical schools. Now I know I've just said a lot, but just to make life a little more fun. How's the week been? <laughs> Joe.
2: <laughs> Great question. Well, thank you. First of all, Gene and Khadija, thank you so much for having me. I you know it's an honor and a pleasure to to be a part of this and uh really you know thrilled to get a chance to have this conversation. Uh how's the week been? You know, we're we're early in the week, but you know, this this is uh continues to be a time Uh, you know, in our society, so much uh, transformation and, you know, politically, uh, certainly around the work that I care deeply about. So I think like, you know, this week has been like a lot of other weeks, kind of a blur, uh, but, you know, very gratifying and that I feel like we're moving forward on a lot of different areas that are near and dear to my heart, Um, including, you know, on the societal level, certainly, uh, but also, you know, at our hospital and, and across our system. So um, that that's the way I'd sum up this past week and every, every day that we're making, that I feel like we're making progress is, is, a, is a good day.
0: How about you, Khadija?
1: This week has been refreshing. Um, last week was incredibly busy, um, but I, this week has started off being pretty refreshing. I created my menu for the, for the holiday and made my plans to try to make the holiday you know, as normal-ish as possible um, since we're not traveling to visit with family, um, which is gonna be big because we have a big family and we usually are used to all being together. So just being thoughtful and creative about how we will do it this year to make it you know as special and as normal like as possible. How about you?
0: Well, it's uh, week two of my puppy. so <laughs> fortunately, she's been sleeping. it's kind of like. It's kind of like having a baby, you know. She's been sleeping. Last night she slept like seven hours, which was like amazing. Um, so that's been uh, a real uh, joy, um, as well as a you know challenge. Uh, uh, the other thing for me, you know, I, 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 we've had a couple of interviews with major media outlets, and uh, they've been they've been challenging because they're asking questions. Um, about how are we going to cope with this long, dark winter, you know, particularly um, uh, with, uh, with COVID potentially surging after Thanksgiving and, um, and, and how do we motivate our kids and how do we work with our kids and how do we keep everybody on track? Um, uh, you know, lots of folks are depressed and uh, rightfully so. So I think it's been stressful and challenging for me to kind of keep things on the positive and hopeful side and Joe I'm so glad you began that way because I think if we don't keep up keep the hope and the faith we're not going to accomplish very much so anyway let's get on with our questions so Joe you know your background and current position affords you the ability to use years and years of research and and educational programming to promote social justice inclusion and battle disparities But you're beginning a new effort uh, at MGH, hopefully will extend to the uh, uh, Mass General Brigham. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what your what your planning is?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and thank you. I think, uh, you know, the the work that I do, I I care deeply about. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about and I think I assume this position. Uh, and Mass General, you know, providing formal oversight of our diversity, equity, and inclusion. My gosh, in May of last year, with the idea that we would try to, you know, fundamentally intersect this important work with our four with the four pillars of our mission: care, training, uh, research, and community health. And you know that that work was was moving, you know, forward quite nicely when COVID hit, and and you know we took great pains to try to respond in an equitable way and with a kind of what I would say is a a kind of doorstep to bedside approach to meeting the needs of diverse populations, and and I think um, undoubtedly saw the disproportionate impact of COVID on, on communities of color came out of that. And then, you know, as, as you articulated when you began, the, the murder of George Floyd, you know, one of a series over not decades but you know centuries of violence against black men, women, and children, you know, brought this issue to to I think uh, the the forefront uh, and created a national reckoning. Gene, for me, in ways that I think um, I viewed as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to leverage people's, um, I think, sense of moral injury uh, to create some, you know, I'll, I'll use this analogy really to grab as much land by building as much many new structures and resources and accountability to address the issue of structural racism, in and outside our worlds and racism more generally. And and we've done that in two particular ways at the system side, Mass General Brigham worked diligently to create an effort called United Against Racism, which focuses on our people, our culture, our clinical care, our community health, even how we use our resources and and how we invest in our community and, and, and in diversity. And then, you know, kind of complementary to that, we built something called the MGH Structural Equity Ten Point Plan, which is quite comprehensive, and aims to do all types of things to really, you know, kind of again focus on people, culture, and care, and and in unprecedented ways commit resources and accountabilities, and what I would say is the execution of rigor, which quite frankly has lacked for for a lot of years in this work. A lot of aspiration, probably not as much focus on rigor and execution. Um, those two efforts, I think, are incredibly exciting. And uh, I say unprecedented because never in my lifetime have we had an opportunity, I think, to get the amount of resources and the structures and, and this kind of plan uh, landed the way we did uh, in the last you know, uh, several months.
1: So I guess my thought is to, to address these issues around um, structural racism and, and inequity, it's going to take a team of various people from various backgrounds, a pretty diverse group, but I also would imagine critical to the effort would be having um, faculty and staff of color. And and so I guess my question would be around the issue of recruitment and retention of faculty and staff of color. That's probably going to be somewhat of a challenge because I don't think Boston is a place that's high on most people's lists uh, of people of color to move to. It definitely wasn't on my list of places to, to go. Um, so I'm just wondering your, what your thoughts are around um, Increasing recruitment and retention of faculty and staff of color to help in this this um, mission of, of yeah. really addressing the issues.
2: And I say that that's what we would affectionately refer to as point seven, initiative seven of the <laughs> ten point plan, which is our uh, you know effort to uh, increase diversity and, and uh, equal representation and governance and leadership across the institution. So I'd say a couple of things. There's no doubt. That I think, you know, around the country, there's been a lot of talk of diversity for a long time, including, you know, at MGH. And I've been part of it. I've been here, you know, as you mentioned, for almost 20 years and been part of our Center for Diversity and Inclusion. So what have we seen? I think we've seen progress. I think it's been a, a drip, drip, drip progress. It's not the progress that any of us would like. It's, a, you know, a complex issue. But that being said, I absolutely believe we can and should and will do more. And and that requires several key components to it. Um, it isn't just if you build it, they will come, right? You need you need to think about this in, in multiple ways. First, um, you need to have resources <clears throat> to make sure that that people um, that we attract and people that we're aiming to retain feel like they are valued and they can, you know, kind of go about their lives. You know, the, the communities of, of individuals who we're trying to recruit have larger you know debt burden. Boston's not a cheap place. Um, so those resources are critical, I think, in, in kind of leveraging that, you know, it's not just we want you here, but, but we're going to make it, make this an opportunity that's livable for you. I'd say number two, the, you know, the another key point here is that it's not just come and join and we check a box. How are we going to re- recruit? while we also retain, promote, support, develop, create an environment where you feel included and you can grow. And just recruiting you into a standard slot, in my view, is not good enough. We need to have a part of a of a, an approach as we bring people on to say, what is how are we gonna help you get to your trajectory? How are we gonna support that with resources programs and have a vision for you? Um, I'd also say that you know people wanna come to a place where they um, see other people who look like them on their care team and also see patients who look like them. And I think we have an opportunity to do even more around increasing the diversity of our patients with this chicken and egg idea that, you know, if you're trying to recruit somebody who's diverse, they, they want to, you know, likely care for a diverse patient population. You can't do one without the other. And uh, so, we're, we, you know, I think that's a, a key part of what we uh, aim to accomplish. And accountability is is essential here. So, you know, I think our leaders really respond to accountability goals and targets and, you know, for all too long, I felt like we haven't been courageous enough to set goals and targets around diversity, and we should. And why shouldn't we? This is not about making exceptions to warning standards. This is about recruiting top talent to a top institution. And part of the thing I'll end with is that you know, there's Boston, there's Cleveland, there, there's a bunch of differences. Rochester, where Mayo is. I mean, there's a bunch of places. No place is great. I don't think, you know, we're better than some and and maybe worse than others. Uh, but this is a chance, in my view, and the way we're pitching this is come join a movement, come be part of something special. You know, we're also not some small little regional hospital. We are Mass General and we take pride in that. And I think if we are to truly live out our values and vision, we do have to have a care team that that reflects our communities.
0: You know, I like, I like your uh, notion of uh, accountability and uh, demonstrating uh, efficacy. Um, so uh, we had a recent podcast with O'Neill Britton uh, uh, and he pointed out, that we all have implicit bias, uh, no matter one's race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation. So one, uh, very valuable tool, uh, that does have a long history over 50 years, I guess, um, uh, is the implicit association test. And I wonder whether or not it's, it's, it's come to your, you know, come up. That we we should all be taking the IAT, uh, you know, fairly routinely, and and kind of monitoring our, our implicit biases and learning from them.
2: Yeah, but Gina, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think, look, you know, the the, the science on this
0: has evolved. I think, you know, in 1999,
2: when I was part of uh, the Institute of Medicine Report and Personnel Treatment, we surveyed doctors around you know, bias in in clinical decision-making, 99% said, no, not me, right? The not me phenomenon is very powerful because, you know, we as caregivers think we have blinders on, we're taught that we have blinders on to personal characteristics and we're making decisions with with these blinders that are equitable and just. And that's just not a fact, it's just not the fact because we're human, right? And we're susceptible to those same, you know, stereotypes. The good news is in 2016, the last big survey that was done, 16,000 doctors surveyed, you know, 43% now agreeing that they have biases that impact their clinical decision-making. The ability for us to advance the science of this discussion and move away from good or bad people to all human beings who are susceptible to um, taking untoward actions, particularly on things they see with their eyes, race, gender, and age, uh, stereotypes activated the most in cases where we're stressed under time constraints and multitasking. You know, all that has allowed us, I think, to bring a lot more awareness to this. I'd end here by saying that awareness is nice. We could train people about implicit bias, and I think that that's helpful. At the end of the day, the real kind of pivot is accountability and measurement so okay we've done this training what are you going to do differently in the decisions you make and in the responsibilities you have that are going to take that into account and how can we measure that so we could then tell you if if you you know if you've lived up to those promises because i'm i'm a big believer in training but i'm not a big believer in training as a check the box tool we need to have training as part of a biosphere or portfolio of activities that are going to lead to measurable change And I think whether it be bystander, microaggressions, implicit bias and stereotyping, racism, you know, cross-cultural communication, all those things need to be part of a a mandated learning portfolio that addresses the needs of different learners in different disciplines, but is an essential part of our fabric.
0: So Joe, uh, one really important question is um, implicit bias uh, is uh, pervasive, but how does it actually affect the provision of health care as you've seen it over, over time?
2: Yeah, Gene, the evidence is crystal clear. I mean, uh, when I going back 20 years when we started doing this work and, and again, referring back to the Institute of Medicine on equal treatment, you know, we were asked by Congress at the Institute of Medicine, do doctors treat people differently? Uh, and you know, and we explored this, and we said, you know, the, the racism exists. Uh, healthcare, like many aspects of society, is is you know built on structural racism, um, and so there's no reason to believe that people aren't making deliberate choices, although we hope not. And and it wasn't tested back then, like it was tested um, with paired testers for mortgage lending, housing, you know, criminal justice, and education, where you kind of could see these patterns. That being said, you know, we we delve deeply into this concept of stereotyping and began to connect this idea that um, you know uh, assumptions that you might make of people will then and and frequently do impact your care decisions and the way you communicate with people so uh, you know and so we began to talk about about that and and there were several examples like a study that that showed that, Uh, African-Americans compared to whites with end-stage renal disease on hemodialysis were less likely to prefer for renal transplantation than their white counterparts, and it wasn't because they didn't want to be on the list. And then when you do an analysis of that, you see that there's a a big chunk of that decision-making that is subjective. And when something is subjective, it is subject to a person's thought processes, both conscious and and unconscious, right? And so that that was our working hypothesis. So, So to cut to the chase... You know, there have been many studies since that time where we have, have used the implicit association test to measure subconscious biases and then given individuals um, uh, case studies to, to measure their clinical decision making. And as you might imagine, individuals who had higher levels of subconscious you know biases also had were more likely to make uh, care decisions uh, that uh, led to disparities. So this is you know this isn't conjecture this isn't like oh it's a nice thing for us to know if we have stereotypes in the clinical setting I would argue it's almost lethal because you have a population who believes that they're not affected by it who is affected by it that then impacts their care decisions in ways that they don't know believe or understand and don't think happen so it is it is the perfect storm for disparities it's not the only cause of disparities, but is one that really requires education and, and continued exploration
0: and let me just follow up just briefly um you know um uh, there's good reason for people of color not to trust the healthcare system. I won't go into the history we all can look it up uh it's there um uh are you planning on um taking a look at how things change in terms of the perception of the folks that come to the Mass General and the way they're treated and, and the way they're, they're uh, you know, provided their health care.
2: Yeah. So, Gene, you know, the good, the good news here is that we have done a lot of this work over the years. The challenge with it is it hasn't been powered and, and resourced enough to bring it to scale. But I'll give you one example. You know, in in 2000, in the early 2000s, when we began to stratify our patient experience by race, ethnicity, um, you know, we saw two things. Um, Number one, that not all voices were were at the table, meaning the response rates of individuals who come get care with us were lower among people of color. And number two, what we decided to do, and I guess what we thought was really important is how do we go about hearing those voices? And so in 2004, we did a survey where we oversampled minority patients to get a sense of their experience with us. And I'll just give you one data point. In 2004, 25% uh, of uh, Latinos, 21% of African Americans, felt like white patients next to them at MGH got better care than they did. In 2000, from 2004 to 2012, we spent five years doing trainings, building a lot of the structures around equity, and you know all these things. And in 2012, we, we surveyed again, and those numbers dropped from 25% to 9% among Latinos and from 21% to 6% among, um, among African Americans. And they went down to single digits in 2017. So two lessons here. You can't manage what you don't measure. You, to your point, you need to really get a sense of people's experience and maybe go above and beyond just the standard tools. And number two, you know, when you find something, you do something. We found big differences. We developed interventions. and I think we're proud to say that we saw improvements. We need to bring those to scale. and So the answers are resounding yes.
1: Yeah, that, that that's awesome, because I think it, it is one of these things that we, we know and we, we see, but there's, there's very little in terms of scales and out to, to measure outcomes to really be able to point to what the, what the biases are, what the perceptions are, so that you can actually directly address them um, to give patients a better experience and to make them feel better cared for. Um, I just want to go back to the implicit bias test. So if we were to incorporate that into training, do you have any thoughts on the best way to administer it and, and the best way to really um, address the results? So in terms of just processing the results, yeah. like you said, we all feel like, you know, to some degree, we're physicians, we don't have any bias, we're, we're all good. So I think really the processing of the, the outcome is going to be really important. Do you have any thoughts yeah. on that?
2: I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, Gene and I when we first intersected it was about our work at Harvard medical school and doing stuff in that area around cross-cultural communication. And, and I remember just as an example, that you know, um, in the mid 2000s, we had a requirement that every any Harvard medical student, uh, when they began as part of their orientation, they need to read unequal equal treatment, they need to read the spirit catches you fall down, and then they needed to take the implicit association test. And then during orientation, and you know when they first arrived, we would do a debrief of this, right? And I'll tell you, you know, focusing on the IAT, what you learn is that, you know, the not me phenomenon is very very powerful. These are smart people, and you know the first three, three things out of their mouths are, "I don't believe this test. Has this been validated? Are these questions legit? <laughs> like you know because you're so uncomfortable with what you've seen that it just can't be real. It's the conscious versus the subconscious, right? And so that was a big lesson for us because um, what we understood is just administering the IIT and, and saying, okay, good luck that's not good enough. And just administering the IIT and then doing a breakout group and not having a facilitator who was trained to manage that response was also perilous. So I would say that the IIT is very important, but it needs to be built in, in a, a kind of a thoughtful learning pathway that allows for, you know, an orientation to what the test is, taking the test. I think a good facilitated discussion um, and addresses, you know, those uh, stages of, of grief, if you will, right, that people have after they do the IIT. that says, look, this isn't about good or bad people, it's about a normal mind, and your awareness of how your mind is working, and let's think about ways in which you can counteract that. So, that, that, those are some of the biggest lessons we had doing that, you know, and doing it over the years, because this is something that we see all the time. People uh, assume a very defensive posture when they do the IAT,
1: and uh, you need to be able to manage that well. I, just ha- I have another question then. Um, so this is really hard, emotionally draining work. How, how, how do we fight fatigue and demoralization and, and just the, the, the seeing the the efforts wane over time. I was really worried with COVID that things would kind of peter out because people are already so exhausted from so many other things. That's going to be really important to manage. And and I'm just worried about the the toll that it's taken on people.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that if you care deeply about this work and you see this opportunity, you're trying to work 24 seven to try to, you know, again, grab as much land as you can, because you know that the the window at this level of engagement will close and you have to be careful not to do it at your own peril, you know, and, and make sure you have balance, make sure that, that you, you know, kind of, just I don't believe in tempering my expectations, but to some degree for your own kind of mental health and well-being, you need to temper your expectations, understanding these things weren't built overnight, they're not going to be fixed overnight. My generation, you know, each generation will contribute to that, you know, to the vector of of bending, you know, the moral arc of the universe towards justice. And I think part of what you what you do as you live through this is you, you know, you try to kind of bend that arc as much as you can with all your might, but you understand that, you know. I got to be proud that if I can contribute one or two pretty strong vectors to that and then pass it on, you know, uh, and, um, and certainly I think all of us are not effective if we're burnt out um, and we're not able to uh, give it, give it our best. So it is, it's, it it is a challenging time and it's been a challenging year in so many ways with, you know, with all this work and, and to think that now at year's end, we're gearing up again is, you know, it's really daunting.
0: So what other uh question I, I I imagine that your um the curriculum the training has to not just include healthcare professionals and allied healthcare professionals but virtually everybody who's at Mass General from the security guards to the valet parkers to you you name it to anybody that 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 folks come in contact with to create a whole culture uh uh, across across disciplines and across the spectrum, is that is that fair to say?
2: Yeah, it's absolutely fair to say, and I think you know the, the 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 there's that need, and there's also the challenge of executing that right because that's not one course for everybody. I mean, you need to really understand that that we need to have a series of you know kind of key principles and messages that we deliver through a variety of learning modalities um, that are respectful of the, the learner. Uh, the time they have, their level of, you know, kind of, you know, computer literacy, general literacy around all these things. So, you know, unlike tra- developing a course for a particular discipline that, that, you know, you have a set of common characteristics that unify a group, you know, when you think about training 26,000 people, what we're thinking about is, in, fa- in fact, a bucket of, you know, five to seven offerings of which, You'll have to, from a mandatory standpoint, do at least one, but there will be some that allow people to go deep if they want to, and there will be others that won't be reductionist but will be give you the basic skills that you need. And you know, across that portfolio, we believe that we can start to speak the same language, advance that culture of, you know, inclusion and equity, and and move forward. It, you know, it's 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 definitely going to take some time, but that's the the uh, thought process that we're bringing into this work.
0: And and one other thing that that's kind of related to that is, you know, it seems that to me that there's more than just teaching folks about their own uh, racism or just, you know, implicit biases. And that is kind of changing the way we present ourselves to patients. In other words, you know, are we going to have, you know, monitors that are in different languages. Are we going to have posters on the walls? Are we going to have, you know, open displays of welcoming people of different color? Are we gonna you know McLean did a wonderful job uh of, of destigmatizing uh, psychiatric disorders, mental illness in, in Logan Airport. And I remember kind of walking down the hallway and seeing just it. it's amazing. It was I've seen it, it. it made me feel. it made me feel so well, proud of McLean, but also it was it was a message, and are we going to be creating those messages visually and in other ways, other than through education?
2: Yes, without question that that would be a uh, point nine initiative line, <laughs> and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that I have them memorized right now. But that is our inclusion campaign. Yes, and we're thinking about physical space, you know, democratizing communication so that you know all of our employees all you know we get all our stuff via Zoom and email, right? All our updates like there's whole parts of organization that are the most diverse that, that don't have access to that. Um, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, our, our point nine is really focused on all those things, which is how do we really create a welcoming environment in our physical space with our events? You know, this idea of inclusion and making people valued, um, we are going to be way more deliberate about that. And it's gonna be resourced in ways that it's never been resourced before. So, you know, a lot of these things, you know, over the years have been done at the margin, done, you know, after hours, done on weekends, you know, these, any of these efforts uh, by passionate people. I think we turn the corner now and say that this is um, an, an opportunity to really institutionalize this. And, and I think we've, we've put those, uh, you know, those, we, we, we've planted those seeds now and are, are watering them well. So that, that's, you know, the, the reason it's a 10 point plan is because it's comprehensive. And when we started to roll out, people said maybe you should do three, maybe you should be four. I was like three or four are not gonna fill, fill you know, fix the problem. Ten's not gonna fix the problem, uh, but 10 better than three or four. And I think 10, the 10 that we chose are fairly comprehensive. And, and I think they will address a lot of the things that, that we care about.
1: Resourcing is, is just so important because in thinking about, again, going back to keeping the momentum and keeping people engaged, you have a group of passionate people doing the work and, and it's exhausting when it's just a, a, a small group doing all of the work and, and really to be able to kind of spread it out to have, you know, more of a team that that is resourced and, and there to do that work as opposed to like you said, squeezing it in on the weekends and after hours, um, it's gonna be a, a much better outcome.
2: Yeah, and we built that in and, and I'm very wary of the, you know, what we call the minority tax or the black tax where we have a problem and we ask the the people who suffer from the problem to fix it, and we ask them to fix it through committees and volunteer activities that's not transformation that's not that's not really um, kind of funding your values and and really and I think the, uh, what we've done now is a huge pivot there we are um you know, we've all been on committees that kind of just kind of grind on and you kind of got one or two people who do all the work and then, you know, eventually you just stop going because you are like, oh, nothing ever happens here. just, you know, they got it. You know, we really want to cremate, create robust committees that allow people to provide their input and then a team to execute that on that input with resources and with the plan so that people feel like, wow, my time was really well spent there. People cared about how much time I spent. They were thoughtful about it and they were good stewards of my time. And that's the environment we want to create. We want it, we want people to be um, recognized for the time they give by their departments and their divisions and their leaders. And, you know, I'm even playing with the idea of, like, can we give people incentives, gifts, or you know, things like just to value their time that they're giving up for something else. Just these small things, I think, are small tokens of appreciation that we often don't receive when we have to do this work.
0: Well, uh we could go on. Um uh but Joe, I, I really, you know, want to emphasize how important the work you're doing it well you. you're doing now and all the work you've done to lay the groundwork for this. I mean, it's been it's been amazing and um we're all going to chip in and we'd yeah, love to have I, we,
2: <laughs> I no, I just say I just say you know that this work uh, I can create a superstructure. We can create some of the big things, but you know, if we're going to change this organization, it takes every single one of us to look around and say, "What are the one, two, or three things I'm going to do differently?" And for anybody who has, you know, in any leadership position, to say, "What are the five things I'm going to do to change the, you know, the ways in which I provide oversight, guidance, management, goal goal setting, all that stuff?" That is, uh, that can't all be done by me. We all, if we all do that, if we all commit to that, then, you know, and just at least communicate that with each other, so we're all kind of rowing to some degree in the same direction. That's what will make us a better place. And so I, I appreciate, you know, that that perspective of it's gonna take all of us.
0: So so uh uh for folks that wanna kind of uh add some comments or make some suggestions or uh you know, have Joe come back, please let us know what you'd like. Uh but let's end as we typically do, uh, and uh talk about what, what struck you in the news this week. Uh, so Khadijah, what struck you in the news? <laughs>
1: so i was reading the and going back to the holiday i was reading the new york times and i saw the picture of the tree at rockefeller center looking all mangled and just so sad and it just it just was like this is 2020 and this is another example of just riding the struggle bus in 2020 but but really as we come to the end just using that as an opportunity to think about again how can how can i turn this around and what can i look back and say you know I was trapped at home and I didn't get to do some of the things I wanted to do, but this, in the end, I was able to do this or I was able to accomplish that. Just going back to thinking about what I can be grateful for and how I could have made this year, as tough as it was, kind of have some purpose. Um, so that, that, but looking at the tree really just kind of made me stop in my tracks because it was something I was looking forward to doing at some point before the end of the year, going to see the tree at the center. How about you, Jean?
0: Uh, well, uh, you know, I'm a news addict, uh, uh, but I won't get political, uh, although this will be political. Not today. No, well, I will be political a little bit. No, actually, I, I've, uh, I, 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 you know, as, as, uh, President-elect Biden has been rolling out his, uh, cabinet nominees, it's really apparent to me that he's not just going for experience, but he's going for diversity and he wants just as just as Joe was pointing out, we want Mass General and its its its, it's uh, staff to look like the folks that come in. I'm really encouraged that our government will look like America, uh, and and that's that's I think what struck me positively in the news today. Joe, how about you? Oh,
2: there's so much in the news, you know, and I think I, I agree with you, and I think there's this, there's this calming sense of. You know, at least uh, a, uh, a change to just how we interact with each other and, and kind of this, you know, hope for, for more dignity and respect and how we, we treat each other as fellow human beings. I mean, I think that you see that in the news and different signs of this, you know, kind of, um, you know, I too I sometimes say, you know, I, I don't want to get political, but, and, and, and I say that because I don't believe respect, dignity, are political you know, attributes that anyone can can or should claim. Um, I, I respect people's differing views around social or fiscal policy, but I think we need to get back to a, a place where civility and and decency and dignity and respect become core tenets that we role model from the top. And um, and I think uh, you know just looking at the news and finally a sense of taking a deep breath and feeling like wow this. Turmoil is looks like it might be coming to a close. It's just like a, it's opening up a, a, you know, kind of a new window for promise. So, uh, that's kind of my news digest of of the the, you know several pieces that and how they made me feel.
0: Cool. Well, everybody, uh, thank you so much, Joe, for being here. And um, uh, again, folks listening, please, we want to hear your feedback. Uh, I'm Gene Bresson.
1: These are both watching.
0: As always, we hope that our conversation will help you have yours, and I'll see you next time.
2: And again, I think our biggest message to caregivers needs to be you are human. Human beings are wired in such a way where this is a normal function, where it can help us in some ways develop clinical acumen, walking into a room, seeing something that before you even need any data, you can help you identify oh, that person starting to get sick, but it can betray you when it relates to the way you communicate and care for people particularly around lines of race, gender, and age, where we, uh, those stereotypes are, are kind of most uh, potent uh, because they're the things we see with our eyes.